Shortly after I got married, I moved to Florida. Uh, and actually, I had been there for six months before Carolyn and I were married, uh, living in the house of somebody who was referred to me. And a young Christian guy, really energetic fella. One of the first things he said to me when I walked through the door of his house the first time I met him to move in with him was, Hi, I'm an addict and I need you to not bring any alcohol or drugs into the house. And I thought, that's an interesting way to introduce yourself. Uh, but it also highlights for me a long love I've had for people who are in recovery. Um, there is a freedom that people who are in recovery from addiction have that just, they just don't care what you think about them. They're so <laughs> in need of help, and they know they're broken, and so their defenses are all down, and they're a joy to be with because you can then let your hair down and, and go, you know, I'm just going to be real with you too. It's just, it's a real thrill to walk alongside people who come to the end of themselves and say, I'm broken, I need help, uh, because that's true for all of us. Needless to say, I was responsive to his request that I not bring any beer in the house. Not a real difficult thing for me at that age for two reasons. One, beer was expensive and I hardly had any money. And then secondly, um, I had been in a Pentecostal-type church that had said drinking any alcohol is bad. And so I was sort of kind of trending away from even wanting to be associated with it in the first place. A couple weeks go by. I was chipping in for, you know, utilities and rent and television, and I noticed on our TV package that I was helping to pay for that there were some fairly raunchy channels with some fairly raunchy programming that was available late at night. And so not wanting that to infect my young mind, I said to my new roommate, hey, how about we scale back this cable package, save a few dollars, and really you know, take away a temptation for me? And his response was, no. Why don't you just control yourself? And it was fairly ironic because I thought, wow, that's not how it went three weeks ago when I moved in. Um, but I recognized something at that important part in my life, which was I was supposedly uh, an older Christian. I certainly was chronologically. I'd been a Christian longer. And I may have even fancied myself a more mature Christian. So the response of a mature Christian would be, Okay, I'll figure out how to battle this on my own, and not long after that I moved out anyway, so it worked out well for me too. But I, I remember that being my first experience of somebody saying to me effectively, I don't care enough about you to make any sacrificial effort on your part. I honored my commitment to him because I really felt like biblically that was what I was expected to do. The debate about whether certain things are acceptable practice for believers was one of the many dilemmas facing the Corinthian church. And we are continuing our series, Fault Lines, by looking at the Corinthian church on the subject matter of license and legalism, something that many of us have, had seen, have seen and experienced in our church and personal lives this dichotomy of something being legalistic or something being licentious. We'll unpack all that. In one church context in which I lived, there was a group of adults who threw a Christmas party and served wine and beer, and it caused a bit of a stink. And uh, I was surprised to hear one of the so-called elders, leaders of the church say, quote, abstaining from drinking alcohol is a sign of maturity. And I remember thinking at the time, Maybe, 
Sometimes. Because, see, it's not that simple. It all depends on why someone is abstaining. If you are an alcoholic or someone who tends towards binge drinking, then abstaining would be a sign of maturity for you. Uh, You're learning to avoid temptation. You're learning your own weakness. You're saying, yes, I'm humbly broken and I'm not going in a bar. Totally think that's a sign of maturity for you. However, if you're abstaining from alcohol because you're under the impression that all alcohol is the demon seed of Satan and that your abstinence will make God like you more and make you more spiritually mature in the eyes of people around you, then it's conceivable and it's likely that you are the weak brother this passage is speaking about, that you are immature because you fail to understand the difference between the biblical command not to get drunk and the loving admonition to be sensitive and caring to others. Instead, you're locked into an extra-biblical cultural expectation that isn't based on Scripture, which oftentimes leads to pride. I want to define these terms real quickly, legalism and license. Legalism has been defined as strict adherence to extra-biblical codes of conduct as a means of judging one's own or another's spiritual growth and development. License or licentiousness can be defined as careless and reckless behavior that passes itself off as freedom in Christ, often done casually in violation of a clear biblical command. I like to think of license and legalism as as two ditches, kind of sort of akin to driving in the winter in rural areas of West Virginia or the Midwest. Perhaps you've experienced this before. On an icy road in rural America, there are ditches on each side of the road, and if you're not careful, you will slide off into them. I can't tell you how many times I had to have trucks pull me out of ditches because I wasn't careful on what was a very slippery surface. When we look at the road, if you will, of legalism and license, we would say that on one side, in one ditch, is the subject of legalism, and on the other ditch is the subject of license. And, and so in these ditches are some things that could be treacherous to your soul. And at the same time, people who are tend towards legalism or tend towards licentiousness actually have good intentions at a certain level. Let me give you what, an example of what I mean. Legalism's best intention is that it would enable obedience to God. All right. So by saying, we're, if you have no alcohol in your life, you will not be tempted, period, and you will have no drunkenness. So therefore, no alcohol and whatever construct we have to make up to make that seem like a biblical command We're doing that for the betterment, for the safety of God's people to keep them from breaking a command to not be drunk with wine. Now, legalism's bad result is that it proudly adds to what is required to be a Christian. Legalism, in many ways, is just another attempt to self-justify instead of humbly relying on Christ's gift. What I mean by self-justify is you create easy-to-achieve standards of righteousness 
and then feel better about yourself based on your accomplishment of those things. So because I don't do something that I conceive of as bad, I can now feel more secure instead of relying on Christ. If we don't smoke, for instance, or that's never been attractive to us in any way, it's difficult not to be proud because other people might be addicted to nicotine. If sexual purity, by virtue of just the environment you've been raised in or the temperament that you have, if that comes easily to you, it may be difficult for you not to think others dirty and, and gross. And it's not just about moral issues where you could say, hey, this comes easy to me or this is of interest to me, and so I'm going to look bad and down my nose at others. There are legalistic ways to actually function in a church. If you are the super-duper theologian of the church, then you can think, well, everybody should be as super-duper theologically geared as me, and so therefore I'm going to look down my nose at people who aren't really rich and deep in their theological understanding. They don't dig into the deep truths of God like I do. That can be you. Or perhaps you're the person who's like the social justice warrior of your church, and you just can't stand it when people don't care about the needy and disenfranchised like you do. You're so amazing. They're not. See, and this is really our tendency. Legalism, things that we will set up as almost like we'll create these things and say, this is what Christians should do. And then we use that to judge other people and to make ourselves feel better. License people. Licentiousness has a good intention too. The, the best intention of somebody who's living sort of in this freedom world is that they would experience the joy of salvation independent of any righteousness of their own. And if you've been in a church where you had a lot of legalism dumped on you, a lot of rules about not playing pool, capital P that rhymes with, you know, it's a whole Music Man song, never mind. I uh, almost went there in my own head, but then I realized I'm really old. Um, if you've had a lot of don't do, don't touch, don't eat, let alone you're worshiping on the wrong day, if you've had a lot of that built into your life, and then all of a sudden you get into an environment where there aren't those rules, it, there's a joy that comes from saying, I'm okay with God just because of Christ. I don't have to do anything else or not do anything else. I'm loved by him plus nothing. I don't have to do anything. And that is biblically and theologically accurate. He can't love you any more than he does right now. You can't do or undo something that will make him love you any more than he does right now. That's the best intention of somebody who's living on the licentious edge. But there's a bad result too. And that is that if you aren't cautious, you slip off into displeasing God and risk harming yourself. God has, in fact, commanded obedience for his glory, for our betterment. The Ten Commandments are not null and void. So we don't get to go, hey, I'm saved by grace, so I'll do Sabbath worship whenever I feel like it. That's just not an option. You know, adultery, you know, we would never take that lightly, would we? The Corinthians might have, but in our subculture, would we? But you know what? There are commands that we find ourselves going, ah, not a big deal. See, you, you risk being passive or, or dismissive of things that are actually important to God. 
If you insist on getting drunk, it's not only disobedience to Scripture, but it's an offense to God, and it will do long-term damage to you. This is true, and I'm not just picking on the alcohol thing. It's just the easiest thing to point out. It's true in many areas of Christian living. Here's another thing I've noticed in my own experience as a Christian and a rebel by heart and being around Christians for the last three decades as a Christian in churches and 20 of them as a pastor. And that is often those of us in this state of licentiousness will drag others down with them so that we won't feel guilty alone. Scripture speaks of it. When we ignore Scripture, we often surround ourselves with others who actually encourage us to ignore the Scriptures. This is another danger of the licentious. And so we've got this road of one ditch of legalism on one side and one ditch of licentiousness on the other side. And now Paul's going to introduce a third way, which we call the way of love, right down the middle of the road. This is where Paul wants us to live. Paul wants us to say, don't fall in this ditch, don't fall in the other ditch. What are we saying? We want to be in the middle. Jesus says this in Mark 12. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. To understand what was going on in Corinth, we have to do a little historical background. Greek culture, which is the culture into which this church in Corinth was planted, was polytheistic. In other words, most people in the country, most people in this culture believed that there were a multiplicity of gods. In fact, some of their theology is very akin to Western culture's postmodern notions of God. It's like a piece of this God and a piece of this God, and we're all sort of kind of doing the best we can to glom together what we can know about God. So you sort of rob from all these different places and create this synthesized view of deity But a lot of Corinthians believed in multiple gods, a plurality, a polytheistic view of deity. And they worshipped in various temples and shrines. The Corinthians would conduct feasts at these temples where they would eat the meats that they'd sacrificed to these small g gods. And when the Corinthian Christians were converted, many continued participating in these feasts because in some ways, it was expected within their social and class systems. They were, it was sort of kind of the way their world worked. Others were discovered to have bought the meat for personal uses. There's some historical evidence that you could buy meat there cheaper than you could in the regular market. So it became a, an issue in the church as to whether or not Christians should participate in these idol feasts or whether they should meet the, eat the meat sacrifice to idols at all, even if it's not done at an idol festival or in a pagan temple. On one hand, you had folks who were saying in one ditch, all meat sacrificed to idols is bad, don't touch it, don't go near it. And then on the other hand, you had folks saying, I'm saved by faith in Christ, so it's no big deal for me to be at an idol feast. This was the continuum. And now Paul is going to speak down the way of love in the middle. And the first thing he's going to say to us in verses 1 through 3 is, love from God is always building up others. His first instruction for staying in the middle, between the ditches, is to say, 
that if you're going to mirror the love of God in our lives, it's always going to be about building others up. So we read from verses 1 through 3, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Into the Corinthian context, Paul reasserts what's biblical and knowledgeable. But he warns Christians who think they got a pretty good handle on salvation by faith through God's grace. He warns them that they don't know as much as they think they do if they don't see the entire picture that they're supposed to be about building others up. He tells them they've resolved the matter and their issues. They're good with eating in the temple. They say they're free to do this because they have a clear understanding that they're saved by grace alone. But Paul says you're only thinking about yourself. Real maturity in Christ leads not to greater status but to greater sacrifice. A clearer knowledge of the gospel will lead you and I to be more loving not more licentious. Paul encourages humility and love, even as he makes it clear that he agrees with them in part. He's going to make an assertion about God and idols that would seem to undergird their licentious behavior, but he's saying you're missing the point. Read again here with me, verses 4 through 6 of 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence. Now, again, when Paul quotes, he's talking, he's basically echoing their words back to themselves. And that there is no God but one. Verse 5. And although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in deeds there are many small g gods or many small l lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul agrees that an idol doesn't even exist. It's a a made-up thing. There is no God other than our God. There is no Lord other than our Lord. He is monotheistic, and he's telling everybody, we do not live in a polytheistic world. We live in a monotheistic world. There is one God, and yes, we know this. And while the licensed folks may have been correct about not being saved by any means but Christ, they, they couldn't understand that it wasn't about their freedoms as much as it was about helping others being built up in relationship with God. They were correct in saying they couldn't lose their relationship with God through any action or inaction. But Paul was nuancing it to say, but you failed to see the call of the Christian. The call of the Christian is to do whatever whatever is necessary to love and build others up. Jane Gropp is a member of our church, and she actually wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. We studied it last summer. She says in this, and this would be the first time I've ever quoted from a member's publication, so this is a a great moment for our church. She was in the first service, and she's like horrified because she's like, 
oh my gosh, you're quoting me, don't do that. But I thought what she said was profound. Quote, Paul wants the Corinthians to check their knowledge against the plumb line of the gospel. Love is the true test of knowledge, and its basis is the love of God. To be known by God is to be in relationship with him through the cross. This sacrificial love is the basis of true knowledge and wisdom. To be mature doesn't necessarily mean you understand the theology of grace enough to be able to enjoy all your freedoms. Maturity in Christ is being willing to sacrifice your freedom to build others up. Obviously, this attitude of building up through service and sacrifice reflects the love of Jesus that is seen in our own experience with him. And this is in part why this is about Jesus and not about what I get to do. It's about what Jesus is doing in others' lives. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 11, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to abstain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. One of the challenges of being a Christian is, is if you are by yourself or tend towards isolating yourself, as is really easy to do in our culture because you can blow into church of choice and kind of church it. You know, you get your meal, you leave as quick as you can without talking to anybody about it. And, 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 and I understand that compulsion, but... One of the means of grace is to experience God's love through other people. And if you cut yourself off from real relationships with people, you cut yourself off from actually being able to be encouraged and built up by them. My men's group on Tuesday night um, has been a really sweet time for me. My wife has a women's group on Wednesday night. We both meet here at the church at 7 o'clock Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You're welcome to join either of us. We found that to be really encouraging because... We just feel like we can be ourselves. And this is a unique experience for us as people who I'm a pastor at the church, and we can just kind of sort of be real and, and, and be encouraged and built up by others. And, and I can't remember the time in my life as a minister at a church where I've ever felt that way, where I felt free to kind of just be broken in front of some brothers who will pray for me. This is a first for me. I won't speak for my wife. You can talk to her. But it's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. He's saying, build each other up just as you are doing. I'm encouraged today as a pastor here at PRISM that I see that happening. That makes me happy. Makes me happy for me. Makes me happy for you. The second thing Paul will call others to in 1 Corinthians 8 is that love for God means always caring for others. Love from God is always building up others. We experience that as we experience His building up of us through others. But love for God means focusing our energies on taking care of others. And we see in this passage uh, what's supposed to drive us to this, what's supposed to motivate us to do this. Verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some... Through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. 
We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In Paul's world, eating meat sacrificed to idols doesn't get you closer to God or necessarily take you further from God. Abstaining doesn't get you closer to God or drive you away from God. It's, it's not about the action. It's about where your heart is. And we could say the same thing about a variety of issues that might face a Christian. Uh, in past sermons and in past experiences in our church, others have talked about the, their ceasing to attend rated R movies. Now, that in and of itself isn't something that God has ordained as a regular means of grace for all of us. But if your mind gets warped and your thought life goes into the toilet easily, then you are mature by saying, I'm going to guard my, lust, my tendency toward lustful thoughts and just put a line in the sand and say, I'm never going to do this because of me. In that case, that's a sign of real spiritual maturity. But Paul unpacks this further by saying, if someone who is not a mature believer sees one of these Corinthians eating meat sacrificed to idol, which mature people would know is just meat because there are no gods other than the one God, and so this meat wasn't like demonically tainted by some process. Your participation, though, understanding all of this, may be misunderstood and cause this person whose faith isn't quite as developed as yours, whose understanding of the gospel is not quite as developed as yours, that may cause them to go, I guess it's okay for us to eat in these pagan temple festivals. Here I go. I'm going head first. You see, we need to be careful in order to be caring. Paul continues in the 8th chapter, verses 10 through 13, If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. We are talking about people who, who have a tendency towards taking something that might be good and turning it into something that is destructive to them and being caring enough to say, in your presence, I'm going to make sure, because I love you and you're my sister or you're my brother, I'm going to make sure that I don't do this in a way that, that puts you under in some way, that that weakens an already young faith. To keep the analogy of alcohol usage alive, and again, it's only because it's easiest to do. There are plenty of other subjects in play. If you have a roommate who's a young Christian and giving the partying hard because of their experience, seeing you casually drink alcohol at a party may cause them to think, no big deal, and foolishly consumed until they're drunk. But out of care for them, we're called to be mindful of weaker or less mature brothers and sisters and happily serve them. And we know that it isn't a sin to consume alcohol in moderation, but they may not know that. And they fall into a conscience violation that makes them take it to the extreme. As well, they may not have talked to you and they may not know that you understand the difference either. 
You may say, as I have at different times in my Christian experience, this is, seems like a lot of work. You know, like I, I seem like I've got to do a lot of rearranging of my life to accommodate for you. Why do I have to curb my behavior for others? Well, first of all, let me say, like sometimes parents have to say to kids, forgive me if that seems patriarchal or condescending, but God's word says it, and we could stop there, but we don't like to hear because we know God's heart is as much. But there are times when we're talking about the commands of God where we've got to just say, we're supposed to love each other because Jesus said we're supposed to love each other. Now, beyond that, I'll say, it is what Jesus did for humanity, and when we live this way, people see Jesus in us and experience him in real time through us, and Jesus wants them to not only see him in us, but experience him through us, and so his commands have a multiplicity of purposes, to bless others, to protect ourselves, but there are days when none of that matters, and he still says, hey, listen, just because you don't comprehend everything doesn't give you license to just go ahead and do it because you're never going to be judged guilty for your sins because Christ died for you. We're still called to obey God. And the apostle wants us to know that when we act lovingly towards others, we're actually expressing our love for the Father. And as he says here in this section of 1 Corinthians 8, when we act unlovingly and uncaringly towards others, we are actually sinning against God. For the gospel-driven person, this is the goal. We want to express our love for God through obedience. See, as we're loved by God, we can love others in the same way, sacrificially, and in order to build them up. But because God has so loved us, we're motivated to sacrifice only insofar as we comprehend afresh what Jesus did and does for us. What I mean is that you can't, on your own strength and by your own power, will yourself to love others as Christ loved them. This is the call of the Christian to daily go to the Father and say, I need relationship with you. We're called to daily intimacy with the presence of the Spirit in our lives. That's why we study Scripture or pray. Sometimes we call them devotional times or quiet times. I don't know what the colloquialism of your church culture has been, but be clear, we don't do devotions to please God like we're working down a checklist of things that people have to do in order to be considered a very good Christian. That's legalism. When we spend time in prayer, meditating on Scripture, you know, enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit, when we do this, it's so that we can heighten our sensitivity to his love for us, his presence in our lives, so that we will want to please him. The devotional time is not designed for you to check a box off so that he'll, you think he likes you more. It's so that you can actually hear that he likes you independent of what you do. And discovering that grace makes you go, I think then I might actually have it within me in my joy over what Jesus has done for me to actually love you pretty well and by his strength. John Bloom of Desiring God Ministries wrote recently, quote, the most loving thing we can do for others is love God more than we love them. 
For if we love God most, we will love others best. We're called to relationship with Jesus. And loving God is what we do in response to what he has done for us. A person who's really experiencing grace and love in Christ is going to increasingly want to express that so that they can please God. But it starts with you and I re-entering the presence of God regularly, systematically, so that we can say, I need you. I need to know you. I need to hear you. I need to, only by your grace am I going to be there to hear this thing. And this is why we do communion every week. It's not a ritual we go through. It's actually a means by which we remind ourselves in the tangible that the only way we get into fellowship with the Spirit is through the sacrifice of Christ. And ironically, it's relevant to our discussion today, we actually offer the symbol of his blood in both wine, fermented, and full of alcohol, and grape juice. You know, when I was a younger Christian, I probably wouldn't offer the grape juice because I was zealous for Jesus. Strangely, I thought, you know what? Jesus did it, didn't offer grape juice. Why should we have to pander to people who you know, come from Baptistic cultures where they've come up with all sorts of reasons to explain away how Jesus drank wine that could make someone drunk? And, and I would be really uppity about it. I even had a professor once kind of sort of help me, a uh, seminary professor, sort of justify this arrogance by saying, you know, the, the, the wine, we've substituted it for this grape juice and stolen something beautiful from the sacrament. And, and he is right to one degree in that wine is both bitter and sweet. And this is emblematic of what Christ has done for us. So I do agree that there is something beautiful in wine that does pull demonstrably about what Christ has done for us. He's done something very difficult and painful to produce something very sweet and lovely. But the Bible does not require us, does not command us, you must, thou shalt only use real fermented wine in communion. It does command us, though, to love one another. And in that spirit, we offer a non-fermented version. Because wouldn't it be ironic if what would keep you from experiencing the Lord would be our lack of caring for you by not offering a non-alcoholic alternative? Wouldn't that be odd and really sort of strangely contradictory? That we would say, we want you to come and enjoy the presence of the Lord, but we're going to be so insensitive and we're not going to build you up at all but come no we we want in our church to be people that would reflect the grace of god which is whatever we got to do within the bounds of scripture to invite you to the table to have fellowship with the spirit is what we want to do we do this because we have been commanded to care for each other and to love each other in a way that would build each other up. So let us pray.